Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 5th of June. Today has been a difficult Sunday to find one single focus. It's the weekend of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, but it's also Pentecost. In this podcast I've rather ducked out of preaching about either Pentecost or the Jubilee and instead am focusing on the story of the anointing of David as king over Israel. There is some method in this, in that it was the Spirit of God that led Samuel to anoint David, and the Spirit is invoked in the anointing of a monarch, as was the case at the coronation of Her Majesty the Queen in Westminster Abbey in 1953. Our music today has echoes of that service 69 years ago. We've heard Handel's Zadok the Priest, which was written for the coronation of George II, and has been sung at every coronation since. Later we will hear versions of other hymns that were sung that day, until we end with a song that's only just been written for this year's anniversary. Some notices. The Church Magazine for June is available from the cafe or foyer, and it can also be viewed or downloaded from the Church website. As well as our usual 10.30 service this Sunday, there will be Church in the Cafe at 4pm, when we will welcome the Vocal family home from Nepal, where they work with BMS World Mission. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies! I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. O Lord of heaven's armies, my King and my God! What joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises! What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem! When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. They will continue to grow stronger, and each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. O Lord God of heaven's armies, hear my prayer. Listen, O God of Jacob. O God, look with favour upon the king, our shield. Show favour to the one you have anointed. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. O Lord of heaven's army, what joy for those who trust in you.
God of all nations, on this day of Pentecost, we praise you for the power of your Holy Spirit, equipping each of us for our life's work. We celebrate especially the wonderful work of our Queen, who has put loyalty before her royalty through all the ages of her reign, and who, day by day, has served you, her God, and Christ, her King, with humility, resilience and grace. Thank you for all she is and all she has done to your glory. You came like a dove, wings softly beating, resting on Jesus. Help us to be gentle in our dealing with each other. May we choose the path of peace. You came like a strong wind, breathing energy and power into the believers. Help us to respond to your power as we work in our homes and employment, in our churches and communities. You came like tongues of fire, consuming doubts and fears, breaking down the barriers of language. Help us to keep the fire of our faith burning, fanning the flames until we dance with the certainty of your presence within us. Amen. A reading from the first book of Samuel, chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next Jesse summoned Shimeah, but Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. And in the same way all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, This is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought 
and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. One of the primary messages of the story we've heard is that God is yet again providing for the welfare of the people, just as God had previously provided deliverance from Pharaoh, manna and water and quail in the wilderness, law and ongoing relationship at Mount Sinai, a land to live in, food and family, and hospitality for Ruth and Naomi. This story continues that story of God's providence, as is indicated by the first words of chapter 16 in the first book of Samuel. God says to Samuel, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. The Hebrew word that's translated here as provided literally means to see. As in English, Hebrew uses to see idiomatically with the sense of to provide. For example, in English, I will see to your needs. This Hebrew term provides a key to this story. It signals that God has seen the people's need even before they're aware of it. As God had done in the past, God was again venturing out ahead of the people, authoring the scroll of their story before it had yet been unrolled. God's guidance is usually not as discernible in the moment as it is in hindsight. I'm sure that many of us will recognise that we can often only see that God has led us when we look back. In the moment, it can feel as if we are journeying through a fog, unable to see our nose in front of our face. We may not sense what God is doing in our midst or how God is leading us. Even the great prophet Samuel did not know what God was doing. This story, with so much of the Old Testament, affirms that God's providence operates beyond the spectrum in which our sight operates. But even so, we remain ourselves within God's view. It's important to note that God's eye here is on the flock and not just on the individual sparrow. In our age, we tend to individualise so many of the messages of the Bible. Here it's important to note that it's the community of faith that's under God's care. Neither Saul nor David's older brothers might have understood the way in which God was providing for Israel as a good way, but God's eyes were on the people as a whole and not merely the individuals. The story in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is both elegant but also ironic. The irony is couched in the fact that the prophet Samuel is told to listen, but instead uses his eyes to see. I guess that he might remember back to his childhood when he had to listen out for God's voice in the temple. Each of Jesse's first seven sons were before Samuel to see which son would be anointed as king. When the eldest son, Eliab, who was tall and fair, passed before Samuel, the prophet thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. God's response has echoed down through the ages. Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesse then paraded Abinadab and Shammah in front of Samuel, but each time God said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse brought four more sons forward, but none of them was chosen either. There was one more son. He was the youngest and of such little account that Jesse had left him out in the field, tending the sheep. In the ancient Near East, the shepherd was a symbol of the king. 
and ancient audiences would have been touched by the irony that the one who was thought too insignificant to be considered for the role of king was actually already fulfilling his future vocation, shepherding the flock. When David was brought forth, the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. The story plays upon the contrast between seeing and hearing. The chapter's key word, see, is again in play, especially in verse 7, where it occurs five times. The problem is that Samuel is relying on his human sense of vision, which will not do for the work of God. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 19, Samuel had even referred to himself as a seer, literally a seer. But as 1 Samuel 16 verse 3 emphasises, Samuel's job was not so much to see as to listen. You shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. As the above summary of the story indicates, the text uses the same verb, say or name, in each case when Eliab, Adbinadab, Shammar and David are presented. And the message is really clear. When dealing with matters of God's actions and will, human sight is an inadequate tool. The human sense of hearing, if we're listening to God, is preferable. But there's one more irony to explore in this podcast, and that is David's heart. God says, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, of course, anyone who knows the rest of the David story surely knows that David was, well, less than perfect. During David's reign, mistakes were made, as the non-apology apology of today's politicians go. To tell the story of David means to tell the truth about David, and one must guard against gilding over his sins with a narrative version of gold leaf. For that reason, one of the lectionaries pairs the story of David's anointing with Psalm 51, and that psalm's connection with the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's faithful husband Uriah. The link between the two stories occurs in the word heart. The Lord looks upon the heart, but human beings sin, and thereby we defile our own hearts. As David did in his adultery, his attempt to cover up the sin, and in his murder of Uriah. But the Lord can create clean hearts, Psalm 51 associates the following words with David when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan with his sin. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. The good news is clear. The first words of Psalm 51 are, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. And so because of the Lord's character, there is hope for human hearts. Our character is flawed, we are broken, we sin against God and against each other. But with God there is steadfast love, that's his character. There is mercy, forgiveness of sins, and God can create clean hearts. Other than Jesus, the Bible says more about the life of David than about any other biblical character. A two-sided character, if ever there was one, David's life exemplifies the best and worst of what life looks like when a person does and does not follow God. 
He is the epitome of God and Samuel's warning that Israel should not have a king. Unlike Saul, who was chosen simply because of his outer appearance, his height and good looks, David was chosen because of his inner self, a heart tuned to God. Even his repentant response to his sins shows him to be a man after God's own heart. He represents Israel's, and indeed God's, second attempt at a successful monarchy. David's accomplishments tell the story of a man who was living large, a skilled musician. He was the one called on to soothe Saul's anxious spirit. Lover of music and words, he wrote the lyrics for many of the Psalms. His honesty before God endeared him to God and to many others. Expert with a slingshot, David refused Saul's armament and felled Goliath with a single shot to the forehead. His skills as a warrior not only captured the attention of the women, they roused Saul's jealousy as well. A gifted administrator, he organised Israel's army, its worship and governing systems. His military feats extended Israel's borders from the Nile to the Euphrates. David wisely chose Jerusalem as his capital, since it lay in a neutral location between northern Israel and southern Judah. As a worshipper, he successfully brought the ark to Jerusalem. He longed to build a house for God. Though not permitted to build the temple, he gathered materials and left instructions for his son Solomon. In a day when new regimes were known to kill any potential rivals, David refused to lay a hand on Saul, God's anointed, or on his family. And his stance is remarkable, especially since Saul, directly or indirectly, tried to kill David on five occasions. Despite all his success in his public life, David's private life was a dismal failure, a disaster. In addition to issues surrounding his relationship with Bathsheba, he married Saul's daughter, Michal. She loved him, helped him escape from Saul, even lied to her father about it. And yet when the two argued over his unabashed worship, it put a wedge in their relationship that was never healed. And she became just another woman in his life. If that wasn't enough, David's failures as a father add to the tragedy of his life. He was silent and took no action to protect Tamar or punish Amnon for raping her. He was satisfied, it seems, leaving the job to her brother Absalom, who carried out the penalty for incest by arranging to have Amnon killed. David then failed to manage his relationship with fugitive Absalom, at first refusing to see him once he permitted him to return to Jerusalem. David in turn became a fugitive and had to flee Jerusalem when Absalom built a following, had himself declared king, and even multiplied his family's incest by publicly raping ten of David's concubines. Despite Absalom's obvious disdain for his father, David wept bitterly when Absalom was killed. Perhaps he wept because he finally realised his failures as a father. David also failed to deal with his son Adonijah, who, unknown to the ailing David, had himself declared king. When Nathan and Bathsheba advised him of the attempted coup, David named Solomon as king and left the task of dealing with Adonijah to Solomon. In the midst of all his accomplishments and his failures, David lived out his call from God, so much so that in Acts chapter 13, Paul says of him, The people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for forty years. 
But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. For all we know about our Queen's faith, she has also answered God's call. She is a human being and so not perfect, but who is? Like David's family, our Queen's family may have vexed her, but she has lived her life to the best of her ability. She was born into a royal family, but with no expectation that she would be Queen, as her father was only second in line to the throne, and David, his brother, was hale and hearty, well, rather too hearty, actually. On the death of Elizabeth's grandfather, King George V, her uncle David became king and was crowned Edward VIII. He abdicated later in the same year that he was crowned, which was therefore the shortest reign of any monarch of the United Kingdom. Having given up the throne, Edward VIII was given the title Duke of Windsor, and he lived out his life in relative obscurity. Elizabeth's father became king, and from that time when Elizabeth was ten years old, she knew that she would one day become queen. Sometime later, in a radio broadcast, Elizabeth said this, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share it. This was not a statement that the Queen made at her coronation or on the death of her father 70 years ago. It was what she said 75 years ago on her 21st birthday, when she was still Princess Elizabeth. And that's how you respond when God places a calling on your life. The question is, I guess, how is God calling you? To what is God calling you? And what are you doing about it?
Let us pray. God of love, we thank you for the Queen's Jubilee. As we reflect on the Platinum Jubilee celebrations across our country today and during the past week, we pray for the Queen. Thank you for her 70 years on the throne and for all she means to so many people across this nation and worldwide. Thank you for her love for you and her willingness to share her faith. As the celebrations come to their end, draw close to her. May she know the ongoing power of your Holy Spirit. God of love, be with our Queen on this Jubilee weekend. Holy Spirit, hear us. God of love, we thank you for this half-term holiday. As young people head back to school, and many of us return to work after the extra bank holidays, we thank you for the time off. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time with family and friends, and to enjoy the change to usual routines. We pray for those who have used the half-term holiday to continue revising for their GCSEs and A-levels. Be with them in their final exam weeks. Help them to keep going, to remember what they've learnt, and to feel calm and confident. God of love, be with us all as the holiday weekend comes to an end. Holy Spirit, hear us. God of love, we thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. As we recall the events of that first Pentecost, may we be people who know the power of the Spirit in the everyday. As we remember the disciples in the upper room, may we be people who come together to pray and seek your will in this world. As we recall the Spirit falling in tongues of fire, giving the disciples new words and new languages, may we be people who communicate well with others, able to explain your love and compassion for them and those they love. As we remember Peter's sermon and think again about how he unpacked your word, help us to read the scriptures and learn more of its truth. God of love, be with us this Pentecost Sunday. Holy Spirit, hear us. God of love, we thank you for the church. Pentecost is a time to celebrate the birth of the church, and so today we pray for our own church community. We pray for our leaders and for all who are part of our church family. We think also about the worldwide church, particularly where the church is struggling with persecution. Renew your people in their faith and refresh them with the power of your spirit. God of love, bless your church across the world. Holy Spirit, hear us. God of love, we thank you for our world. There is so much going on in our world at the moment. We think in particular of the conflict in Ukraine and once again ask for peace to come quickly. We also pray for the climate crisis, for those with power to effect change, that they seize the moment and do what they have promised to do. Help us all to seek and embrace solutions, even when it means we have to change what we do. But on this Pentecost Sunday, we are also thankful for the world we live in as it is. At the start of June and with the summer months ahead, we pray that your Spirit will bring hope and that we, as your church and your people, 
would be bearers of the hope we have in you. God of love, bring your Pentecost hope to our world. Holy Spirit, hear us. Amen. Our last song has a rather different feel from the rest of our music today. This song has been co-written by Graham Kendrick and the Rend Collective, and it was specially commissioned for this Platinum Jubilee. But first, a final prayer. Lord of our lives and Father of all, let our thanksgiving prove itself in service to you and to our Queen, our country and one another. For your name's sake. Amen. In this glorious year of the Jubilee We give thanks for Her Majesty In honour of the faithful hearts Who chose to serve and to play her parts Many nations have gathered here from the mountain heights let the song ring clear Celebrating the answered call Blessed with prayer and the sacred oil Rise up and serve Is the call we hear With hope in our hearts Joining as one, making history Let fanfare sound Through this 